Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. So you had your book launch last night. Yes, and it was just absolutely incredible. And people from your childhood, I talked with a woman who knew you since you were in fourth grade. People from all parts of your life came out, I imagine. Yeah, no, I think that was the craziest part is the amount of support that I didn't expect. Like the most like unexpected people to walk through the doors last night. Um, a really a mix of people from my past and even just people that are still in my life. Um, a lot of old friends that have recently came back in since publishing the book, which alone makes it worth publishing. You know, a lot of old friendships that kind of fell to the wayside. And so to me, that was just so encouraging to see them back in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm grateful the book kind of led them to that. And the response to the book already, and w we just put it out. What was the date that we put it out? Do you remember? It's just was a few weeks December ago. December 9th, December 10th. Yeah. So the amount of people who've already reached out both to you and to me to share that they read it, read it quickly. Um, they've been leaving reviews. How has that felt for you? I think it's been a little just kind of bizarre. Um, I think, like I said, there has been unexpected people to kind of reach back out that I honestly kind of accepted the fact that they're not going to be in my life again. A lot of friends that I cherished our friendship, but we kind of went different directions after high school. And for them to reach back out, I think has been super encouraging. And the reviews kind of have left me speechless. Just the way that the story was told, I think, challenged a lot of people. I think it inspired a lot of people. And the two things that I keep hearing over and over again is one, they couldn't put the book down. And two, a lot of people cried, which I did not expect. So many texts and pictures of people crying and the book being covered in tears. And I think like that even takes me back of like, oh, wow, like this book has already made an impact on those who have read it. And a lot of people have been referring it to other people. So I think to me, it's been really encouraging being in the first couple weeks of publishing and just realizing the impact that it has already had. Yeah, it's been remarkable. For those of you who haven't read it yet, the book is called Hope and Her. And I'm sitting with Krista Bouquet. And Krista was a student of mine when I taught at Princeton years ago. And I think it was only two years that we worked together. It was yeah. a short amount of time. But the two years I had there were two of the most poignant and memorable years of my teaching career. Uh, for so many reasons. The staff was amazing. We were like a mini family. Um, the students were part of that family. It was such a close-knit group, but you were absolutely one of the students who stood out to me with both the story that you had and the drive that you had. And um, I write about that in the forward of the book because I, I really want people to know you know, from another person's perspective, just how driven you were to create a better life than the one you were thrust into. So I would like for you to give just a brief synopsis, overview of what the story is about and kind of where it starts off and then where it leaves off. Yeah, absolutely. So the story really starts off when I was a young girl. There's a lot of things in my childhood that at the time, it didn't look like it was anything um, out of the ordinary. But as I got older, I started quickly realizing that there was a lot of things that um, wasn't adding up and um, a lot of things that weren't right. And so from um, being a young girl, I started realizing things. And as I got older, it started to come out how truly um, unnormal they were um, and truly um, how scary they were. Uh, there was just a lot of fears of the unknown and being so young, like you're left with a couple options. And I really had to come to a point where I was like, am I going to continue to enable my parents um, and my older brother living an addictive lifestyle or am I going to put my foot down even at a young age and make a decision that I wasn't going to repeat this cycle? It was a generational thing. There was addiction in my, my grandparents' life and then my dad's life. And then it came down into my brother's. And I was left with the choice of, is it going to come into mine? Am I 
going to keep this toxic cycle going in our family. And from a young age, even though I, I couldn't do much as a young girl, I did make that decision in my heart that I'm not going to, I'm not going to repeat this. And so I think that's like an overall theme of the story is like, we all have choices to make. And when we're left with that decision, there's no one to blame as much as sometimes we might want to blame somebody else for the decisions that we make. We ultimately are the one um, to make that decision. I could have blamed my parents if I picked up addiction or if I became an alcoholic, but truly I was the one to make that decision. And, and I'm grateful that we all have those choices to make each and every day. Yeah. And you know, you are a living proof of what I fully and wholeheartedly believe in is that we are the architects of our own lives. And no matter what circumstances we are given, what hands we are dealt, um, what things are thrown our way, we always have a choice of how to respond to those. And, you know, being a teacher for a number of years and seeing that decision from students over and over again, how some choose to let that be their story of victimhood and they will use it as the reason to why they can't. And others such as yourself have used it as a catalyst to push you to have a better life. And it's so inspiring and it, it's such a reminder to all of us that we can't control what is done to us, but we can always control what we do with it. Absolutely. And I think I even talk about it in the book a little bit. It's like, although I, I went through um, so much just throughout my childhood with addiction um, and just other things that my parents were wrapped up in, like, like I could have made the decision to just stay on the couch, to like, just to be depressed and to kind of play that victim mentality. And I'm not to say that there was days I stayed on the couch, but I refused to just live there. You know, there was days where, yeah, it was hard to get up and do different things, but I didn't live in that victim mentality. I did whatever I could to get out of it. And that's really my heart behind this book is that people would realize there is life after going through, um, whether it's abuse or addiction, that there's life after that. Like it doesn't end there, but to be encouraged that there's so much more to life than that. Yeah, I want you to talk a little bit more about what you experienced because the story is, uh, there's so much going on, right? Addiction is a theme for sure. But what was it that you had to come to terms with? We learn as early on as I believe the first chapter, the second chapter, but what it is that your family kind of discovered and how that story starts to unravel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the beginning of the book, it it kind of takes you into a place. Um, it was December, it was Christmas time, and I was 11. And being 11, like you're still a child, you don't know much. Um, you're pretty naive to a lot of the things around you, especially when it comes to your parents. Uh, but it's pretty easy to hide things from kids, especially at that age. But I started realizing um, when different phone calls were being made and different people started being around our house, that like I, I kind of felt really uneasy and a night came when everything that we knew was flipped upside down and over the course of a couple of months of not living at home being taken away from school and having to lie to our friends um, it came out that my dad was in a motorcycle gang and he started working as a confidential informant and the reality was is we were in hiding because the gang was coming after our family and they were going to take our whole family's lives and I think being 11 and enduring that like it's absolutely terrifying especially being in a family of addicts obviously naturally when things get more stressful um, the addiction increases and um, it's a little bit more intense and so I think for me I I had no idea my dad would always make this reference that he was going to go see a man about a horse and obviously as a little girl I'm like I'm so excited dad's getting us a horse <laughs> and it, it became a joke like it was like me and my sister I have a twin sister and we would always be so thrilled that dad's going to go get us a horse. And obviously time and time again, he had never come back with one. And as I got older, I started realizing when he'd say he's going to go see a man about a horse, he was actually 
doing work as a confidential informant, getting these guys off the street. But that ultimately led to our lives being in danger. And so, I mean, going from that into like just the addiction itself, like there's so much fear um, in my life as just such a young girl that kids aren't equipped to process that. We didn't go to counseling. We didn't um, do a lot of the things that I think most kids probably should do in that situation. Um, And so it's like, I think that even carried into my adulthood of like, what do you do when you've kind of been dealt this hand that you're not really sure how to deal with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was, talk about your knowledge of what he was doing before this December incident uh, happened. Did you have, what was his life like? Did you have any idea he was um, up to no good? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, I love my dad and he, he was just wild. Like he really was. Um, he hung around a really rough crowd and that was evident to me as a young girl that I felt really uneasy um, around these men that wore leather jackets and patches and were always revving up their motorcycles. A lot of my early childhood memories were at the clubhouse. I can even still vividly picture uh, the bar stools and the smells of those places, um, the view of the Minneapolis skyline from outside the door. And so I think like it was very evident that these men were no good. And my dad was always up to something. Um, as much as I love my dad, he had his own things that he was wrestling with. And so he was sometimes not always present. And now I obviously know why, but he, he cared a lot about our family. But in the midst of that, his addiction brought him around the not so good people. And I mean, that was terrifying for us kids. It's like, he was unpredictable in his addiction, um, very aggressive. He was bipolar too. So it's like he was completely unpredictable at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you were growing up, what did you believe to be your dad's profession? I truthfully had no idea. I, my, my dad never worked like your typical nine to five. And he was, I mean, most of the time messed up. So he slept a lot. And so... Yeah, he he never really gave us an inkling on like what he was doing ever. Like there was no like, oh, my dad's this. It's like, I actually have no idea what my dad does. Yeah. So his profession was never uh, anything you really talked about. What about one of the things you talk about in the book are um, the perception of other people as you were a kid. And um, I remember one story in particular was when somebody kind of called you uh, called your family out and how that felt yeah absolutely so a biggest thing is like my parents like my dad um, and my brother were into drugs and so I mean it was prescription pills it was smoking pot and growing marijuana in the backyard eventually you know heroin and meth and so like naturally my instinct was to defend them even though I knew that they were guilty of what they were being accused of. So I would go to school smelling like marijuana, absolutely horrified because the whole house reeked like it. And people like I I would get confronted by teachers and students and I was automatically associated with it. And I was being accused of things that they were doing. And so I think a lot of people I've been told over and over again, oh, your parents were drug addicts. Oh, your dad's a drug addict. Oh, your brother is drug addict. And like, I would get so defensive because like, even though, yeah, I knew they were like, I I wanted to do nothing more than just to defend them because it's like, they were so wrapped up in it. I'm like, I didn't, I think part of me just didn't want that to be their identity because although they're wrapped up in addiction, they're human. And like, I see them in a different light. Still to this day, I see them in a different light. I don't see them as their addiction. I see them as a brother. I see them as a father. And a lot of the times it's, like our, our past repeats itself if we if we don't make a decision to change that. And it was evident in both of their lives, um, despite what people want to call them and associate them with. That's not their identity. Right, right. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I absolutely love about 
the way you wrote the story and, you know, the, the conversations that we had in bringing this together is how much empathy you had for your family. And, and at such a young age, how old are you again? I'm 24. 24. Yeah. To, to have empathy at your age for uh, parents when there were traumas involved as a kid, uh, that is healing that most adults don't do until their 40s, 50s, 60s, if they ever even get there. Yeah. So what do you think helped you get to that place where you're able to have empathy for? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing, and you'll read about it obviously in the book if you pick it up, but the biggest thing was my faith. I was able to forgive them because I've been forgiven. And I think the biggest thing that has um, drawn me to to love them is like we're called to love, um, being a, a believer of Jesus and walking in my faith. And so I think for me, like the biggest thing has been my faith is to love them. I, I think it's given me the ability to give them grace where the world would tell me to not. The world would tell me, you know, to cut them off and they did this to you. You are a victim and like, they're at fault for this. And it's like, yeah, we're all um, held accountable for the decisions that we make, but I'm called to love them first and foremost, despite the decisions that they make. Obviously, um, like I talked about in the book, I have boundaries with them. Even still to this day, um, I still have boundaries in place because like, yes, they did hurt me and I I can't continue to enable them um, as they continue to wrestle through different things. But it's easier to forgive. It's not the easiest thing I've ever done. That's for sure. Um, it's hard. Um, I'll never forget, obviously, those things that have happened. But deep down, like I do love them and I do care about them. Mm-hmm. And how, how old were you when you really were introduced to faith where that started to be a central part of your life or, or just maybe even just dipping your toes into it? Yeah. So I first was introduced um to the church when I was in third grade and there was a program called release time. And that program allowed kids to um, go to a church during the school day to learn about Jesus. And that was like the very first time I ever like was exposed to that. And shortly after that, my parents, um, my time or two went to a biker church. It was quite the experience to say the least. Um, when you mix the crowd, my dad hung out with, with church, it wasn't the same experience as I experienced when I was 12 and I actually made a personal decision uh, to follow Jesus and accept him into my heart. And so like those moments and in those rooms, I experienced a hope I didn't know I could have. And that's really how um, hope and her got her title is because like, I didn't know that there was hope in the middle of my hopeless situation. It, it wasn't until I was in those rooms with people who loved me despite where I came from um, that I got to experience that. Wow. And did you stay connected to your faith through that time, even if not through the church? How did you stay connected and when did you fully lean into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, from that time when I was 12, like at that point, I started going to church as much as possible. It was really my out of being home. I think I took any chance that I had to not be home. And it just continued to grow from there. Um, I think living in the home that I did, um, if I'm honest, there was a lot of nights. I'm confident that I, I didn't think I was going to live to see the next morning. And I think being so young and having such an awareness to the, the state of reality of our household and what was happening, um, there was a real fear that I wouldn't make it to see the next sunrise. And there was a lot of nights that I would pray, Lord, if I could just make it to tomorrow, I will blank. You know, I didn't care what it was. I was like, but if I could just make it till tomorrow. And I think it brought me to a place of complete surrender of like, if I could just live, like I will live the rest of my life serving you. I will live the rest of my life surrendered to you. And like from there, it just went off. Not to say that I lived a, a perfect um, 
I wasn't a perfect Christian girl by any means. I, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, you know, I've picked up the beer bottle. Like I have, um, you know, had some sinful relationships, but like that didn't take away from my relationship with the Lord. Um, it just was a part of it, you know, like you don't become a believer and your life's perfect. Um, it's actually quite messy if I'm honest, um, but there's grace for that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And one of the things that is so remarkable about your journey and when you talk about being accepted and loved by the people in the church was this whole other family as well that really took you in. And before that happened, there was a time, I I think I'm getting the timeline right, when you were a student of mine, where you were out of the home and we were instructed not to give your whereabouts um, to anybody that questioned. And I don't even know that we knew your whereabouts at the time. It was just that we knew you were safe and that that's where we would leave it. Yeah. So I left home at age 15 and I, I lived in about 11 different homes. I never ended up in the foster care system, which I'm grateful for. And how do you how did you avoid that? So I think the biggest thing was um, no one reported me missing, <laughs> yeah. if I'm honest. Um, no one reported me missing, which I'm grateful for because uh, I wasn't going to come back anyways. But it was a Wednesday night and I was at youth group. And earlier that morning, my dad kind of lunged at my mom again and was making threats. And for the first time in my life, I stood up to my dad and I, I told him he needed to back up. And if he didn't, I'm calling the police. And he didn't. And I started dialing um, 911 when my brother threw my phone. And I immediately went to go run out of the house. And my dad met me on the landing. And I remember looking him in his eyes and I said, it's either me or it's the drugs. You choose. And he laughed in my face. And that was the moment that I knew that I'm going to leave. And I'm making a decision today that I'm going to create a life far greater than I could imagine. And I went to youth group that night and I... I spoke up and this was after at least six months of documenting different drugs I'm finding in the house, um, them being messed up because like I wanted out so badly and there would be people in the church encouraging um, me that like you only have, you know, four more years or five more years until you're 18. Um, you're so close. And I'm like, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to make it out of this house alive if I stay here till I'm 18. Uh, there's just no way. And that night, the police came, and for the first time in my life, they looked me in the eye, and they told me I didn't have to go home. And it was such a relief to know all my prayers have been answered. You know, this is what I've waited for. This is what I've prayed for. A lot of sleepless nights, a lot of tears. And um, from there, I lived with a couple different families in the church and ultimately ended up kind of moving around a little bit more than I'd like to, but I think I felt a little safer not staying in one place for very long. I just, I didn't want to be found. I didn't want to be known where I was. And being 15, no one made me, um, which I'm grateful for. I kind of got to just slide through that. But I ultimately ended up living with two families from the church that changed my whole life. It really did. Wow. And the family that you ended up going to school with, uh, one of their sons was that the most that was the most recent yeah so did your parents have any idea where you were during this time i think they had some assumptions um but my dad ended up getting arrested um shortly after that incident him and my brother did they were on the lam for a few days um, because my brother interfered with a 911 call and my dad actually threatened to shoot up the church that I was attending um, and that same situation. So naturally he got in trouble for that one. And I think they knew that it was better if I wasn't there. I kind of have always been the one to stand up to them. I've made countless 911 calls um, and I just didn't tolerate a lot of the things that were going on. And so I think I was a little bit more outspoken uh, than my sister was about everything. And I think I think it was better that I wasn't there. You said on the lamb. Is that like on the run? Yeah. Yeah. So they were on the run when you went to the church and when Yeah. After so after that night they put a warrant out for both of their arrests. Yeah. What as an adult, what have you 
realized are some of the adverse effects or things that you have had to work through or deal with characteristic wise for yourself that are a direct cause of the upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest ones that like I constantly wrestle with, I mean, I even know people that I work with that are like Krista (laughs) and even my husband, he's so great, but I love to work. Like I will work, 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 and I will run myself till I'm absolutely exhausted. And I think part of me still operates as that 15-year-old girl who is trying to finish school while emotionally processing everything. I was working at 15 at a little breakfast place and a flower shop. And I think from a young age, I knew that if I wanted out and to stay out, I had to work hard. Like Even after I graduated high school and throughout just the the midst of just turning 18 and being an adult was I had to work hard. And I find myself still trying to work really hard, even though I don't have to. Like, I don't have to work as hard as I did as a 15-year-old or 18-year-old. And I find that the people around me have been so gracious to to pull me away from my work when I've needed it to, because I'm like, I'm willing to give it my all, but sometimes it just has sucked the life out of me. So many people throw themselves into work when they're avoiding dealing with emotions. And actually, my sister and I were just talking about, you know, what she did after her divorce is she really drove dove headfirst into her work as a lawyer, even more so than before. So for sure, you had, you had created a work ethic at a young age that was, you know, work, work, work to get where you want to go. But I also wonder if there was some of that escapism through work. Oh, absolutely. I think there was a a lot of me trying to escape any chance I got. So whether it was sleepovers at friend's house, whether it was work, whether it was church, especially when I was still living at home, like whatever it took. And I think I even still find myself Even when I I come home and I visit Minnesota um, after moving away a few years ago, I just like to stay busy. Like everyone jokes, everyone who knows me knows I don't stay in one place very long until I'm off to the next. And it it drives my husband absolutely crazy because we'll be in the car all day doing all sorts of things because I, I love to just stay busy. Like I think it pains me to stay in one place very long. And I, I do think that is a result of my childhood because I didn't stay at one place very long and like I think it's hard for me to to settle down and just be, you know, and just be where I need to be. Um, obviously, I'm grateful I've came a long way from that. But like it, it is something that still pops up every once in a while. Do you do any breathing exercises, meditation? Any? I don't, but I started working out at like a hot works. So it's like you work out in a sauna. And I feel like over the past just couple of months, it has helped tremendously. I'm just learning how to breathe in the heat because like, if you don't, you're going to pass out. (laughs) Right. right. Yeah. The practice of being still is hard for most people because that's when we have to sit with our own thoughts. And a lot of times our own thoughts are either, you know, we are our own worst critics, so we can be very critical in those quiet moments. You know, we're really good at dredging up something stupid we did like five years ago that just pops up in the moments where you have quiet. But yeah, also it just a lot of times will bring to the surface things that we have kind of tried to stuff away. But yeah, something to consider. And I know you've you've done um, fasts before, like lengthy fasts. Uh, You sit in prayer, Um, you know, so you've you've done a lot to to quiet the mind and get in touch with, with God, your, your higher self as well. But I, I, I wonder how that would shift, you know, your feeling to constantly want to be busy and be on the move if you could do try some of those. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's the biggest thing I've given myself grace for is I'm not fully healed from my past and I won't be on the side of heaven. Like you'll never find um, complete healing on the side of heaven. And I think, that's just so encouraging to me is that um, I know, I know I'm not fully healed from it. And I know that even as I continue to get older um, and one day when I have kids, like there's going to be so many things that will continue to come up. And it's been sweet to 
to be able to acknowledge it. I think that's the biggest thing is when you're able to like acknowledge, like I'm very much so aware of a lot of the things that my childhood has kind of incorporated into me and like has just stuck with me. Um, it's just to be aware of it. And I think when you're aware of your falling shorts and your tendencies, you're able to work on them better and it benefits even those around you. I think when we're completely oblivious to the things that we do, it can even hurt some of the people around us, especially when it comes to childhood wounds. I feel like a lot of the times it hurts a lot of relationships if you're not careful. For sure. And you are so self-aware from, I was just talking, I think it was to Gary, was just telling him the other day, but just how how aware you are of what your past has created in some of your characteristics and how you're working on them, um, how you know, like you just said, you know, you're not healed yet, but like, we're never fully healed. And that's like, that's our journey here in this lifetime is we're just constantly trying to improve ourselves and get back to who we were created to be before life interfered, right? But there was something else that was, oh, the laughing. Mm, Yeah. So, one of the things that you uncovered to me, which I, I wasn't aware of, but um, you've always had a bit of a discomfort with laughing, even as an adult, because as a kid, that was a trigger for your dad. Yeah. And I even, I think I still experience that. Um, whenever I would laugh as a child, my dad would get so mad, like so visibly um, and expressively angry. And like he would internalize it. So if I was laughing, he would think that I was laughing at him. And I think even for him as a child, like he probably didn't have a whole lot of laughter. And like, mind you, like he was a really fun person, but he would get in these moments where it's like, I couldn't enjoy my childhood. Like that was taken away from me at such a young age. And I think I even sometimes still have a hard time to have fun sometimes. Like I feel like like, I feel like I still need to be um, grown up and like I, I need to always be serious. I think people at work even like make fun of me sometimes because I'm always so serious. And a lot of it stems from my childhood I, and I'm aware of it. It's it's has helped me in my job in different um, seasons and situations. But like I'm aware that that is definitely a part of my past is just the ability to let loose and have fun, uh, which is so necessary and so needed. But it's definitely something I'm still working on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has served you it, it, when you were in survival mode and you were trying to get out of that situation and then you were earning your own money. I mean, to be able to act as an adult, as a young kid definitely served you. I mean, you got into managerial positions and different things at a very young age and continued to be promoted when you were in high school you were accepted into a college program. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely should not have been accepted to go to college my senior year of high school. Um, you have to be like in the top percentage of your class. And I was, I was, I was at the bottom. Like I was very close to the bottom. I think I was like probably 20 or 30 people away from like the lowest GPA in my whole class. And um, I think for me, I, I found out that, our high school um, was going on a trip to a technical college that had a floral program. And I started taking floral classes when I was 14. I was a freshman and you're not allowed to take floral classes as a freshman, but I somehow managed to talk my way into that one because I was so passionate about it and wanting to learn more about it. And I ended up taking floral classes all four years of high school. It was hands down my favorite class uh, besides yards, Lindsay. <laughs> and, That's okay. Flowers are probably yeah, yeah. cooler than um, class. And I loved it. And my teacher is just absolutely incredible and just really took me in under her wing and taught me a lot um, and was willing to invest the time in me. And so when my senior year came and we went on this trip to the, the college to see their floral program, I knew that I was going to go that following year. I was going to, after I graduated high school, I was going to go and be a florist. And on this pre-senior year trip there, we found out that this was going to be their last year. And I was devastated. All the other floral programs in the colleges in Minnesota kind of don't exist anymore. And I was like, well, there's my one chance. And I remember going up to the professor and I said, is there any way? 
is there any way that I could do this my senior year? And she's like, well, yeah, if you get accepted to PSEO. I was like, great, that's not going to happen. Um, absolutely not. And I remember going to my guidance counselor. I said, here's, you know, here's the deal. Like, I want to do this. And she was very much so aware of at-home life. I'm not living at home. I'm working as much as possible. And I'm just a girl that just, I just want to go do flowers. And to my surprise, they accepted it. Like they made an exemption for me. And I was able to do summer school for six weeks and finish up the credits that I needed for my senior year. And I spent every day my senior year of high school playing with flowers. And it was just such a joy to be able to do something like that because it was a huge passion of mine. Um, And shortly after that, I was 18 and I got asked to manage at a location in St. Cloud. And I had six employees, all way older than me. And I felt so like shocked that they would even give an 18-year-old this fresh out of college and having absolute no experience leading anybody, you know. And it was just a sweet season for me to just realize that I didn't open that door myself. Like they reached out to me and asked me to to step into this role and lead in that capacity. And really from there, the Lord has done so much with opening doors that I feel like should have never been open. Like I know it's him and no man can close them, you know. So it's just been super cool to just experience that over the over those years because they were crucial years for me. Um as as you read that part in the book. Yeah. Well, and you know, uh, I wanted to come back to you speaking about being at the bottom of your class and and feeling like you didn't have um you didn't belong in in that program that you got selected to your grades did not reflect you know your intelligence and your drive you know i think the benefit one of the gifts you were given and one of the things that your your guides allowed you to have were people in your life who saw beyond what was on, you know, those, those data sheets, like we knew what your potential was and what you were capable of doing. And that getting to school every day wasn't always an option or wasn't always feasible. And so there were so many people that uh, in that program with whom I worked that taught me so much about really seeing each individual student and how everybody has their own obstacles and their own kind of doors that need to be held open for them because of their unique situation. And so, yeah, when you say you weren't deserving those things, I'm like, yeah, you were. (laughs) I mean, I see it so differently, but I I get what you're saying. Um, And just, you know, from, from my perspective and from the people who helped you out. I think we knew how deserving you were. And and that's why people were so willing to help out. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a twin sister. I do. Uh, it was so good to see her last night. So she was at the book launch last night. I got to catch up with her for a while. I don't think I've seen her since um, she was in high school. So that was really cool. And we talked a little bit about her going, reading the book and, and receiving that and going through all of that because as a twin you know you guys were right there together and so I was like how did that land and and she was talking about how there were she was amazed at how much detail you remember because you would write something in there and she'd be like oh my gosh yeah I forgot about that yeah, she was like the best reassurance throughout the whole process (laughs) I was nervous I was like man I'm putting this stuff on paper I don't know how it's going to be received by my family. And obviously my biggest prayer was to honor them um, throughout the whole book. And it was probably about a couple months before it got published. I sent it to her and Lindsay doesn't know this, but I was like, if my sister doesn't approve this, like I got to throw this thing out. Like, I honestly don't know if I could publish this if my sister wasn't okay with it because she's one of the biggest voices in my life and I love her and I respect her so much, but like, I'm also putting her life on paper you know, it's obviously from my perspective. And when she read it and she was like, no, you painted the picture perfectly. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that is such a relief. Cause I think when you go through so much trauma, you're like, did I remember that correctly? Like, was that right? Like, am I like, you know, like a lot of people are like, oh, your book's hard to believe. And I'm like, well, I'm not lying. And then to have somebody like my sister who was there for everything, she's like, 
no, you told the truth. Like I was there for all of it, <laughs> you know? So it was just like a sweet reassurance throughout the whole process that, that she loved it. And it was just, I think even healing for her um, to read it and to like, she remembered things that she hasn't remembered since, you know? It's such a cathartic journey uh, to bring that stuff to the surface again, but but now to be able to process it as an adult. And like we talked about before, um, how mature it is that you're able to have empathy for, you know, the, your family members who put you through things at a young age that have, you know, were traumatic. Um, and she was in the same boat when I spoke with her last night, you know, that although some of those things can be hard to relive, it also is so healing because you can see them in a different light from the way that you did as your 11-year-old self. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything that you haven't gotten across yet that you want to express or other than like, you know, where can people find you, all that stuff at the end? But I think I think because like you, you have a lot of listeners that probably would never step in f- the doors of a church. Yeah. And I think maybe just speaking of like, hey, I know I've mentioned my faith, but if I can be honest... Like I had, I got a text message last night from a girl, not a believer, doesn't go to church. And she's like, this is the first time I'm ever hearing words about God and not feeling turned away. Wow. You know? And so it's like, I think for me, like the story isn't to like throw Jesus in your face. It's not to push the church. Like it's truly the transformation that happened in my life. It's like, it is she's like, I usually say it's the universe when things like this happen. She's like, but it's undeniably that it is God in your life. And so it's like, I think speaking to that, because like, I do think there are people listening that are like, no, I don't want the church. I don't want God. But it's like, no, the story tells a different story. This is, you know, it's it's a story of life and life, life after this. So I don't know if that would be good to speak to. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to probably include some of that. That was really good. (laughs) But I mean, it is, I feel like I meet so many people who, you know, are turned away from the church, whether it's past church hurt or like a, a misconception of what church is. But like, it isn't just a pretty building that makes you feel horrible about the decisions that you've made. Um, for me, it's been relationships that have been so life-giving. There hasn't been a single person that has tried to change me. And I haven't tried to change anybody. I don't have the power to change anybody. It's only through my relationship with Christ that I've been forgiven of my sins and I've been able to be changed from the inside out. I don't have the power to change anybody. I don't have a heart to change anybody. Um, I think a lot of times it's between them and the Lord when they step into a relationship with him. Like I don't have that power. And a lot of people won't step in the doors of a church because they feel like people are going to try to change them. And that's, that's not our heart. I I will say, though, I believe that if you stepped in the doors of a church and you stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will be changed. He will transform and change your life in ways that you'll never be able to fathom. What I left that day when I was 15 to make a, a life far greater than I could imagine, I can honestly say, looking back now, I could have never imagined I'd be where I am. It was truly only by the grace of God and through his his work in my life that I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with you, Lindsay. Like it's only through my relationship with him. I could not have done any of that on my own. And I know a lot of people are like, I don't know about that. I, you know, they believe in crystals or, you know, multiple gods, but I want to challenge you, you know, who's listening to pick up that book. I promise it's it's not gonna hurt you. It's not gonna offend you. I promise this book isn't going to be offensive. It might bring some conviction, but it's healthy to be convicted. Um, It it challenges us to change from where we are to the place that we need to be going. Yeah. I mean, watching your story unfold, uh, just knowing you in high school and where you were at, and then connecting with you on social media and just even seeing that like where you were where you were now or a few years ago when we reconnected. Maybe we were connected earlier than that. Maybe it was as soon as I left the school. I don't remember. But I just remember seeing the photos of you and your now husband, or I think it was fiance at the time. Yeah, but your husband. Um, and thinking like, wow, like she did it. She 
turned the corner. She created this beautiful life for herself. And I can't wait to learn more about it. And then to hear that um, it was, you know, your faith that really carried you through everything has been so remarkable. And there have been so many signs. And like you were saying, so many people talk about it in reference to the universe, right? Like I, I look at repeating numbers, all the t- like I'll pick up my phone, it was a repeating number, uh, you know, and it'll be like, oh, sign from the universe. But I, um, I have a, I was raised, you know, in a Lutheran church. I've always had a belief in God. My relationship has actually strengthened as an adult, not regularly attending church just because I have found my connection in more quiet. And I think for everybody that's different, right? So, you know, I think when, but I'm glad you pointed that out because I think so many people hear like people giving credit to the power of the universe and others giving credit to God and feel there's this big disconnection. To me, it's it's all the same, you know? So I think it's different for each individual. But for me, I could say, this is so amazing how the universe works and still feel inside like this is so amazing how God just had his hand and how this came together, you know? So I'm glad you pointed that out. And I just wanted to speak to that. But yeah, I think what people will find in your book is, of course, the first part of the book. So the book has three parts, hopeless, hopeful, and hope overflowing. And the first part is much about your, strictly about your childhood mm-hmm. and and what you're going through. Hopeful starts to take you into adulthood and your journey of kind of leaving that past behind and, and stepping into the new one. And hope overflowing is a lot about your faith. Mm-hmm. And so I love the way it's set up to give people a gradual understanding of how faith really led you from hopeless to hope overflowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for people to be able to, you know, family members, friends to be able to see it in real time, what was their response of kind of you like seeing where you are now and happy and yeah, I mean, I think the response has been um, just really encouraging. I even I got a text even last night after my my book signing, and there was a girl I went to high school with, and she's not a believer. She you know doesn't attend church. And I've never heard her talk about God, and I got a text from her at three a.m. this morning, and she said, "Krista, this is the first time I'm hearing words about God, and I don't feel turned away by it," and to me, like that's it's so encouraging because that's that's my hope for the book was that I would be able to express my faith in a way that it wouldn't turn an unbelievable or like a skeptic or anybody who isn't unsure about faith. Um, I don't I don't want them to put the book down because it's like this book is to encourage. And uh, last night was just reassurance that like people are receiving that well, and I think that's important because I think sometimes people are turned away by the church. And I didn't want this book to be be turning anybody away, but just really encouraging them along the way and what they're walking through. It's done so much for your life. And if if nothing else, I would love for somebody who really needs that message. You know, I have so many previous students who who need that line of hope, who need that that rock in their life that they've never had. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talked about with your dad you know, as you had a close relationship with him, despite the, mm-hmm. you know, the chaos and everything that was going on and your faith in God. And then having that relationship gave you this, also this newfound like rock, yeah. you know, this father figure that. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing with that is I, I, I was pretty fatherless growing up, although my dad was present, he wasn't present. He, you know, he was messed up on drugs or was off with the gang and like he just wasn't there and he hurt me in a lot of ways just with the verbal abuse and just the anger and the outlashes like there was just so many things that skewed my view of what a father is like and I think 
that's one thing that is you see all throughout the world. There's a lot of fatherlessness and stepping into my faith. Like I got to receive the love of a father that I never had. Uh, the Lord has been that for me and God has been that for me. He's, he's protected me as a father. He's provided for me as a father. And I couldn't, I couldn't change that. Like I wouldn't change that. The lack of having my earthly father has pushed me into having an even greater relationship with my heavenly father. And that's encouraging because there's a lot of skewed views of worth, like earthly fathers that has pushed a lot of kids, I think, to do a lot of things that are hurtful to themselves and those around them. I think it's, it's devastated a lot of families. Uh, it's a fatherless household has been an epidemic in our yeah. society for a long time. And if this, you know, your, your journey in finding faith and deepening your connection with God, I hope that inspires people to know that they can too find a similar path. Yeah. It has been uh, remarkable to see your story come together. There is a happy ending with your love story as well. And I won't ruin that, but a um, lot of synergy that comes together with that whole story and really awesome. So cool to meet him last night too. Where can people find the book? Where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the book is sold on Amazon right now and also barnesandnoble.com. And you can find me on Instagram. I, I would love to hear about um, what you thought of the book, whether it's leaving a review on Amazon. I would greatly appreciate that. But also, I love getting all the messages. It's been an encouragement for me and also those around me who have invested so much into me over the years. Um, it's been so sweet to just catch up with them and just share how this book is touching the lives of many um, and just being an encouragement to those, um, especially those who have been a part of my life, like you, Lindsay, and um, a lot of my other friends and teachers and uh, colleagues. Like it's just been so cool um, to even hear like different viewpoints of how they, you know, seen what I walked through and where I am now. And a lot of them had no idea how bad things were. So I get a lot of people apologizing to me actually, which has been shocking. The amount of people have, randomly reached out and apologized for not doing anything or not saying anything when they thought things were bad, um, which obviously that's, they don't need to do that. Like there's, there's nothing they could do about it now. And I'm grateful, you know, that I was able to walk through that and, and come out on the other side, like I have. Mm -hmm. Sweet that they have reached out nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Yes. So find her book on Amazon. I'll, I'll drop the link in the description um, as well as her Instagram handle, but it's been so fun reconnecting. I know there's already a possible of a second book, so I'm going to hope that we work together again on that one sooner than later. Thank you so much for coming. It's been Absolutely. awesome to have you here. It's been a joy to be here. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye everybody. 